Hi there. I am so excited to invite you to attend our fourth annual free virtual special education and advocacy conference. We are hosting it here at Ashley Barlow Company in partnership with Rebecca Poe Teaching. And we are so excited for a few new things at this year's conference. The first new thing is that we have not just one, but two different tracks for attendance. For the first time ever, we have created a track that is specific for school staff and teachers. We also still have that traditional track that we intend to be really great for parents and caregivers in the IEP arena. So yes, we have a teacher track and a parent track. On that teacher track, you are going to learn about things like easier data collection, gestalt language processing, behavior reading, and other super hot topics in special education practice, as well as advocacy. On the teacher and caregiver track, you're going to learn about stress management for caregivers using adaptive books, something that I have really kind of um, dove into here at my own house, inclusion advocacy, advocacy strategies, and so, so much more. That free ticket will give you one pass, one access to one presentation per hour on the track that you choose, either that teacher track or the parent track. Of course, if you are not available on January 19th or January 20th when the conference is taking place, you can buy tickets to access the conference on demand. And those tickets, of course, are available at our website, ashleybarlowco.com backslash conference slash 2024. Check out the website for more information about ticketing. This year, we also have something super exciting planned. We have decided to make this a two-day event. When I partnered with Rebecca Poe Teaching, I told her that I really feel like school districts, disability organizations, and other community organizations need to start providing trainings that are accessible to teachers, related service providers, administrators, parents and caregivers, and other community members that are interested in IEP support. What if we all attended the same training? What if we all learned information about special education practice, curriculum, how to read evaluations, that kind of stuff, about special education advocacy, how we can collaborate more, how we can work together, and even about special education laws. What if we all attended those presentations and we workshopped them together? So together with Rebecca Poteaching, I have created the Empowered Workshop Series, and we are excited to bring it to your organization or school in 2024 and beyond. If you are interested in having Rebecca and I bring a workshop to you, you can see a preview of the Empowered Workshops on January 19th, the Friday before our main conference programming. For more information about that, either send me a DM or check out the website, again, ashleybarlowco.com backslash conference dash 2024. We hope to see you January 19th and or January 20th and can't wait to connect with you. Hi everyone, welcome to the Ashley Barlow Company Podcast. I'm Ashley Barlow, your host. If you are a parent, 
A teacher or someone who works at a school, or you're a community member, a volunteer or a staff member at an organization that supports people with special education plans, a coach, a tutor, or even a grandparent, you're in the right place. Sit back with an ice cold glass of lemonade, put on your walking shoes and grab some headphones, roll down the windows and cruise. Ready, set, go. Educate, advocate, collaborate. Welcome back to the Special Education Advocacy Podcast with Ashley Barlow. I'm Ashley Barlow and I'm so happy you're here. Today we're going to talk about one of my most favorite topics. We're going to talk about inclusion. Inclusion arguments are probably the reason that I am brought into special ed cases the most. This is kind of the bread and butter of my special ed practice. And today what we're going to talk about is not necessarily inclusion, um, how to get it, the, the kind of mechanics of inclusion. We're going to talk about something that's more cultural. We're going to talk about things for which you can advocate as a parent or a person that cares about a school environment for some other reason, um, some things for which you can advocate that would promote an inclusive environment, things that you think schools should be doing and things that you could um, bring into the school environment as you're advocating for the child. Before we do that though, I want to talk to you quickly about my summer school webinar series. I know that as parents, we have rights and responsibilities on that IEP team. We've got stuff that we have to do. We've got stuff that we have to know. Yet sometimes we feel completely unprepared. And then I also know that it is 2021 and we are all extremely overwhelmed, nervous, and um, kind of not wanting to admit that a school year is coming right back up after this summer. And so what I've done is I've put together a four-part webinar series that will not only get you prepared for 2021 and 2021 school year, I feel like I should go bump, 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 because there's all these unanswered questions about that school year, um, but then also kind of get you prepared for any school year. So what we're going to do is we're going to meet um, every day for four days in a row around lunchtime. And so we're going to meet at 12.30 Eastern. I'm on Eastern time. That might be 9.30 if you're on the West Coast. It might be some other time for you. Um, and if you can't make it live, of course, I will record them and I'll make them available to you as soon as the recordings download. In the first webinar, which we're doing on June 28th, we are doing a summer to-do list. So kind of getting prepared. What can we do in the summertime to make sure that children start the year off right? Just ready, set, go, get going into the school year. The second webinar will be on understanding evaluation reports and progress monitoring vis-a-vis -vis your child's profile. So we're going to talk about how do we use that evaluation report? How do we use that progress monitoring data that we get? And even the, the, the um, paragraphs of kind of um, pros that you get that describe your child's progress, how do we use that and it, it, apply that towards our advocacy strategies for our children? And then in webinar three, we're going to talk about the IEP document itself. So how do we understand the IEP document? This webinar will likely build on webinar two, where we're kind of talking about how we would structure a great IEP 
based on that evaluation data and the progress reporting data. And then in webinar four, we'll talk about great communication strategies that you can use right before the school year and during the start of the school year to ensure success in this wild and crazy year that we are anticipating, hopefully way more normal than what we're all expecting. So we're doing this webinar series the last week of June. We will meet every day, June 28th, 29th, 30th, and July 1st at 1230 Eastern. You can register on my website, ashleybarlowco.com. Each webinar is $19. You can buy the entire bundle for $59, and I hope to see you there. Let's talk inclusion. I feel so passionately about inclusion. It is literally the way that I got started in special ed for the most, well, yes, let's just say it's the way that I got started in special ed was advocating for my son, Jack, to have a more inclusive environment in kindergarten. And like I said in the intro, inclusion arguments are probably the number one reason that I'm brought into a special education case. So today I want to talk to you about three different things that you can do in order to promote a more inclusive environment at your school or for your child in particular, for a child about whom you care, whether you are a coach or a parent or a caregiver or a grandparent or just somebody else that sits at the IEP table. So the first thing that I do that is absolutely vitally important is that I utilize the child's interests for motivating the child. So what do I mean by that? I mean, quite frankly, school is a lot more fun when it's interesting, right? So if you're learning in a way that isn't interesting to you, then you aren't going to be very motivated to learn. If you, I remember my government class, I actually loved my government teacher, but every single day we walked in and we did one of two things. We either watched a movie or we would read and highlight. And he would copy things from the newspaper and we would literally sit and I had government during an election year and we would literally sit and read the paper about the election and we would highlight and that's all we did. The grade was on, I don't know if it was how much highlighting you did or just whether or not you highlighted or what, but that's what we did. And that was so boring to me that I wasn't really motivated to do well in my senior government class. And so if we make school more exciting and more interesting, we are going to do better and we're going to like it better. And so remember, in special education, there is this obligation to uniquely tailor lessons to the particular child, right? To the child's profile, to the child's need. The, the, the lessons and the instruction have to be uniquely tailored to meet that child's needs and to help the child make meaningful progress. And if one way to do that is to include some lessons, some stuff that is of interest to the child, how easy, that is a win-win situation. In addition to that, another thing um, that is kind of a plus for using the, the interest of the child is that it really mixes it up for the teachers. So um, let me give you an example of what I'm talking about here. 
Um, my son, Jack, likes moles, okay? He is really into moles. I don't know when it started. I don't know why it started, but he likes mole traps. He likes moles. I don't know that he would like a mole if he actually saw the animal. I assume it's a rodent. Um, if he saw the rodent, the mole, but he likes to talk about moles. He likes to dig in mole holes. He likes to go on like mole hole hunts, etc., etc. And so that is a weird interest of Jack Barlow, moles. And so his speech teacher, who is absolutely fabulous, went and she printed off a bunch of pictures of moles and other um, outside rodents. So like moles, skunks, hedgehogs, stuff like that. I assume those are all rodents. Animals are not my thing. And she, he has a goal right now of working on prepositions. And so she cut out small little pictures of rodents, including moles, and she would tell Jack stories about what the animals were doing. So, you know, she, I think what she did was she set up like a little barnyard, or you could do this with a piece of paper with a situation printed on it, you know, a, a piece of paper of just a home, a suburban home, for example. And she would say, oh, here comes the mole. The mole is going to walk behind the bush. Do, 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 do. The mole is walking behind the bush. And then she would say, oh no, here comes the snake. And the snake, I know that's not a rodent. The snake is on the roof. And then, you know, she would talk about where they were in relation to other things. And she would get the preposition work in that way. And of course, then she built on that. And eventually Jack was putting things relationally using prepositions with the animals. So she made prepositions interesting by talking about moles so that Jack was then motivated to work because all of a sudden he was talking about moles. So she made the learning interesting with the moles. I thought I could avoid making mention to it, but there must be an accident or something close to my office. So you might hear some sirens in the background. I'm gonna try to piece it together so that it isn't too terribly distracting to you. I apologize for any noise distraction that might be occurring. And while we're talking about it, I may as well say there are also cicadas here in the greater Cincinnati area. So if there's a constant buzz, it's because I can't escape it no matter what room I use in my office for recording. Okay, so the speech teacher uses moles in order to gain Jack's interest. Um, I had a student when I was a teacher who was autistic, and this particular student loved reptiles. And so I didn't use reptiles. I taught German to kindergartners, um, and as it applied to her, she was a kindergarten student. And so I couldn't really, you know, like use reptiles in teaching her German because teaching German to kindergartners doesn't allow for that much flexibility. But what we would do is we would use her love of reptiles and movement breaks. And so if I saw that she was starting to get a little um, distracted or disengaged or, um, you know, was going to exhibit a behavior that was not going to be productive to her learning, then what I would do is I would say, okay, we're all going to do a, a movement break. And I only spoke in German. So, you know, at first I would have to act this out, but we would all slither like snakes. You know, we would do kind of the animal walk thing that is really good for sensory input um, and kind of regulation of our systems. And every 
everybody would slither and we would change tables. I would just rotate tables. You, table A, go to table B, table B, go to table C. You know, we'd rotate like volleyball players and we'd slither on the ground. And it was silly and it was fun and she loved it. And, you know, I would say as we did it and that was enough to re-engage this particular child. So I used her interest for a movement break for a behavioral strategy in order to keep her engaged in her learning. Um, another great strategy that I have seen online a whole lot is to use Legos for blending sounds to work on reading. So you might put a C on one Lego and then an AT on another Lego. And when those two Legos go together onto the Lego mat, then you make K at cat. Um, you could also do this with trains for a child that's very interested in trains. You could put a, a C and then an AT and then you could blend them together and the possibilities are endless. And so what we're doing is we're taking the thing that motivates the child, the thing that is of interest to the child, and we're making the learning applicable to that particular thing. So going back then to kind of the creativity for the teacher, you know, when you teach the same thing, even year after year, but in some cases, period after period, it does get kind of boring. It gets kind of monotonous. If I were to give this podcast a second time, I might not be as dynamic the, the second time as I was the first. Maybe it's a little more polished the second time, um, but maybe by the third or the fourth time, I'm tired. But if I'm giving this podcast to a group of parents and then to a group of teachers and I change it a little bit, I change it for the audience, then it's going to be more exciting for me and it's going to allow me to tap into my creativity a little bit more. And so kind of an advantage of teaching to the children's interests is that you as the teacher have an opportunity to mix it up a little bit and simply mixing it up a little bit is kind of fun. So the creativity is fun for the child, but it's also fun for the teacher and kind of adds like a welcome challenge for the teacher, so to speak. Um, and so, you know, kind of using the child's interest is something that might make learning more accessible. Now, sometimes people say to me, yeah, but Ashley, we can't do that for just this one child. You know, we can't do animal walks for just one child. And in so many cases, the strategy or the tool or the interest that we're trying to tap into is something that would be beneficial and of interest to many other children in the classroom, right? And so, you know, lots of kids are probably interested in Legos and learning with Legos would be very interesting to other children. And so sometimes these strategies can be done for the entire group and can really benefit the entire group and sometimes they can be done just for the individual child. And remember, if we're doing something just for the individual child, we're providing some kind of accommodation, or in this case, it's more likely that we're modifying work, we're modifying an assignment, or we're modifying the way that a lesson is taught, and that's okay. We might even want to put that into the modifications section of the IEP. We might actually want to document that the way instruction is provided will tap into the child's interests, right? Because that might be the only way to motivate the child. 
Now, I think there are some pitfalls to this. And so I'll just tell you one little example of when Jack went to a reading tutor. Um, I really, 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 really want Jack to be a more proficient reader. And I've been on this path for a very long time. I've bought programs and trained myself and we've engaged tutors and we've had all these evaluations and we're just muddling through reading and we're making small little baby steps. And um, I think that's probably what our path's gonna end up to be. But at one point, I engaged a tutor who used Susan Barton, and she was very used to teaching children with dyslexia. She had taught herself, and she was Barton-trained, very, very well-trained, and had had lots of success with a lot of my clients. And so I thought, well, let's see how she does with Jack. And this lady's a retired school teacher, um, and she was used to teaching children that would sit at a table and do as she said. Jack has ADHD and he is very motor driven. And so on the first day, I think she maybe gave him a couple of motor breaks. And then I um, was so frustrated that I ended up like wrestling him back into his chair 17 times. And I thought, well, this isn't going to work. So I said, you know, next time, maybe we should incorporate some kinesthetic um, movement into the learning. You know, like I saw you did something with bean bags. Maybe he could like throw the bean bags at words because he really likes to throw things into buckets. Or maybe you could put the words on the wall and he could throw the bean bags at the words on the wall. And so we went in the next week and the entire lesson for an entire hour was movement based. Well, that was too much because then that was dysregulating to Jack and he was physically tired and the movement was too much. And so then we tried, you know, me leaving and we tried all these different things to try to incorporate movement and some kind of behavioral system for him into this small group, one actually one-on-one -on -one setting for him. And every time we kind of messed with the concept of movement, it created some new hurdle for Jack. Um, and so ultimately we decided that that environment, whether it was Barton, it was the particular teacher, it was his age, um, different things of his profile, it just wasn't compatible for this private one-on-one -on -one therapy that we were trying to engage. Um, and so, you know, sometimes there's too much of a good thing. And I think that's probably what happened in that particular case. Okay, so the first thing that I would advocate for if I were really, you know, kind of looking for the toolkit to including a child in a gen ed classroom um, would be to really tap into the child's motivation. And what that means for parents, you're the expert on your child and nobody at school knows that your kid likes moles or, you know, in my case, PVC pipes, ski ropes, um, rubber gloves, um, you know, weird stuff. Jack likes Nerf guns and Hot Wheels tracks. I guess those aren't super weird. But the key to that is that you have to communicate those things. And so communicate about your child's interests and some examples about what you do in order to motivate your child. Another thing that is super duper important is stressing the importance of communication for the child. You know, most of the time in these inclusion arguments, we are talking about a child with fairly significant needs, you know, probably at least moderate needs. And, you know, moderate is like such a loose term. I don't actually even like to talk about moderate to severe to mild in this, you know, kind of like 
spectrum idea as it applies to children with cognitive disabilities. But, you know, if we're talking about inclusion, we're probably talking about a child that the school thinks might do better in a self-contained classroom. And so maybe this child has um, some kind of communication deficit, some kind of communication need. So the child might be entirely nonverbal, the child might have apraxia, the child might just have a speech delay, the child might have a social emotional thing that prohibits the child from being able to express him or herself as he or she would like to or as he or she does naturally in the home environment, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, a lot of times we're talking about a child that wants so badly to fit in and wants to be a part of a classroom environment, but there is a communication hurdle among other hurdles that are kind of getting in the way of that participation, that feeling of a group. And here's the thing, nobody feels included when they can't participate. You cannot feel included when you are there to observe. It just doesn't work. And so sometimes, Participating orally is challenging. Using expressive language is challenging. Maybe it's mechanic, maybe it's social emotional, maybe it's something else. It doesn't matter why, it's hard. And so if we know that you don't feel included if you can't communicate, and if we know that sometimes communicating is difficult, something for which we might advocate is incorporating different ways for the child to communicate and then not being excluded because they are communicating differently. So what does this look like? Schools should provide lots and lots and lots of different ways for all students to communicate. And I mean all kinds of communication, right? Communicating wants and needs, communicating with peers, communicating answers and comprehension kind of checks, communicating um, socially, if I didn't say that already. So all the different ways that we communicate. If you are there and you are having a hard time communicating, there is no way that you are going to feel a part of the group. And so how can schools do this? One thing might be, this is something that we did with Jack, um, is we assigned him jobs that involved structured communication so that he felt like he had some, and he actually did have some leadership roles in his classroom, but he had the script. He had ways to communicate with his peers. He had ways to access his peers. Um, he had ways to be a leader in his classroom, which is what his nature wants to do. He wants to be a leader, um, but he didn't have to really think or work that hard to do it. Um, and so, you know, when he first got his talker, for example, he uses a talker more for motor planning. Um, he stood at the door to a second grade class for probably a whole quarter of the school year and he greeted everybody and he had to find hello, so-and-so, or good morning, so-and-so, how are you? And that was really good for him to access the greeting part. It was good practice for him, but it also allowed him to engage in his peers, engage in peer relationships in a, um, in a way that, uh, that comes very naturally to um, most of the other peers in his classroom. 
Um, when he was in first grade, his teacher had something called a key reader. And she had um, like a big plastic key on a pole. And then above the classroom door, she would put sight words. And you would point to the sight words with the key that was on the pole. And if the class could read all of the sight words, or maybe they were spelling words, but I know when Jack did it, it was his sight words. Um, if the class could read them all, then that unlocked the door and they could go into the hallway. So it was just a way to practice reading. But Jack got to do that and the key reader would, would read the word first um, and then the rest of the class would quarrel behind. And so he got to be a leader because he got to um, you know, be the key reader. And we set it up that he got to do that more frequently than his peers did. Um, sometimes it's fun to have a child um, actually just call on their peers. So, you know, the teacher's doing some kind of like quick recall or something, and maybe the child um, wouldn't, it, it, maybe it's a social emotional thing and they feel like, oh, they don't want to get called on. They don't want to have to answer a question, but the teacher can still involve them by having them be the person that calls on the child. So the teacher says, okay, Jack, come on up here. And I want for you to call on somebody that, um, you know, looks ready to answer somebody with their hand raised or just call on a girl, call on a boy, you know, those kinds of things. And then um, the child, in this case, Jack, would get to be involved, but not have the stress of um, the, the, the content answer if that is something that's inequitable for that child. Um, a way to do um, this kind of in a whole group setting would be to do kind of like a quick check every once in a while and to set this up as a classroom strategy. So, you know, ask, ask a question maybe at the beginning of every lesson or at the very end of every lesson or as a review from yesterday's lesson or something and say, okay, what happened in yesterday's science experiment? I want everybody to come up with two or three words to tell me what happened in yesterday's science experiment. And students might say smoke came out or it was green or boom, you know, that can be something very, very basic, or it could be something um, that is more, you know, extreme, like, you know, naming of a certain element, like, I don't know, carbon dioxide was emitted <laughs> or something, you know, that is more significant, right? And if the child that we are trying to elicit the answer from has trouble even formulating a two or three word response, then maybe that child has a note card. And so we know what the question's going to be and we've prepared an answer. And maybe even if the child has no expressive language, then the child could just hold up the note card. And that is a way for the child to answer the question just like everybody else in a way that is accessible to that particular child. Of course, you could also do this in partner work. You know, if you break kids into partners and just say, what did you learn? What did you learn? Then everybody has an opportunity to share in a much shorter amount of time than what happens in um, a, a whole group classroom environment. And so the idea here is that the child that we are trying to include more has an opportunity to participate and to communicate with peers. And so what do we do as parents to advocate for this? The first thing is to make sure that schools understand that humans, people, want to participate. 
and want to communicate and want to feel included. And so then what we do is we stress the importance of the need for communication in that participatory feeling. You don't feel included if you are observing. You feel included when you are participating. And this is how this benefits my child. You know, you might have heard me give the example um, not too long ago on an episode where I talked about this birthday party that I had for Jack. And he wanted this really expensive bouncy house, like this rental bouncy house. And kept talking about bouncy house, basketball hoop in. Bouncy house, basketball hoop in. He wanted a bouncy house that had a basketball hoop in it. So finally I was like, okay, fine, I'll get it because he's so excited. Well, then it was a bajillion degrees outside and every single child ended up spending an hour and 58 minutes in my air conditioned basement playing games and two minutes in the bouncy house, Jack included. But I'll tell you, as, as easy as it would have been for me to be disappointed and having spent all that money and all the time setting it up and going to, to order it and this whole thing, Jack's experience was exactly what he wanted. He had all of his friends there. He had a bouncy house with a basketball hoop in it. He shot a couple baskets. He went through the obstacle course and it was amazing. And so his experience was that he got this very participatory, inclusive celebration with the thing that he wanted for his birthday. And that was the focus. That was a success if I kept it Jack-centric. Um, and the next day it was like sunny and beautiful and we had the most fun as a family playing in that thing. So it ended up to be a win, a win for Jack and a win for um, those of us that were sad about our pocketbooks. <laughs> um, so, you know, we need to stress the benefit of the inclusion and the communication piece for the actual child. And then I think it's important to explain that this kind of practice might take a little bit of time and it might take extra tools like a talker, an alternative augmentative communication device, or visuals, or the ability to draw a picture or use a gesture or hold up a sign. But those things make it so worth it. And there are ways that we can save time otherwise, because, you know, let's face it, there's only so many minutes in the day and teachers have obligations. They've got to get through certain lessons. But that's all okay because we're benefiting every child in the classroom when we teach this way. And so therefore, schools need to provide lots and lots and lots of opportunities for children to communicate, to talk, to share, to emote, to show understanding. So that is the second strategy that I love to use to promote inclusion, stressing the importance of communication as a form of participation. And then the third thing I wanna to talk to you about today, finally, is a focus on big school events. You know, oftentimes I'm called into these meetings and um, schools will want to send a child to another school other than their home school because the home school doesn't have a self-contained classroom. And so they'll say, oh, that's okay. We, you know, have this classroom that's across town and, um, you know, the bus rides the same amount of time and so-and-so's over there and, um, you know, it's going to be great. And in some cases, it is great. In some cases, that's the best setting. Um, 
considering all of the circumstances, right? In some cases that might be right. But um, if it's not the right setting, then one of the things that I focus on is those big school community events. And I talk about how um, on my particular street, and I make this you know specific to the child, but on my street, I had a great example. There are five children in Jack's grade that go to our elementary school um, that live on our street. And I think our street has like 30 houses. So we just hit kind of like the, the class of, I don't even know what his class year is, like 2029, maybe jackpot. Um, and so he has lots of same age peers in our class. And I told this story, this kind of hypothetical about everybody walking up to the Christmas fundraiser at my children's school and Jack kind of standing at the end of our driveway with like a, a frown like, huh. well, my school's festival is in September and it has a circus theme and um, we don't turn our school into a winter wonderland and the bouncy houses are outside, they aren't in the gym. And well, I don't know, we might come up to we might go up the street to our school, to your school's festival. Sounds kind of fun. You know, he doesn't get to be a part of something that four peers that are also his age get to be a part of. And that's a really powerful thing to be part of a community. And so if we take that and we have a child that is in a school and we're saying to the school, you know, here's one way that we could be more inclusive it is to make those big school community events more inclusive, to make them more equitable, to make them more accessible to the child. And I'll tell you what I tell my divorce clients, because lots of times divorce clients will say to me, um, you know, it, well, my, my ex um, spouse is not working on potty training and I think they should be working on potty training or something, you know, developmental. And I say, well, you know, the court's obligation is not to ensure that the child is raised just as one parent once or in like the quote unquote best case scenario, right? Because what is the best case scenario for kids? Who's to say that you should be potty trained at nine months or 36 months? What is best? Um, but really, you know, kind of, I call this the law according to Ashley Barlow. This is not Kentucky or Ohio law. This is just what I tell people when it all boils down. The court's obligation is to make sure that children are actually safe. The court has to ensure that children are safe and that they, to a reasonable extent, feel loved, that they feel included, really, that they feel the love in their home community, or in this case, in school, that they feel the love in a school community. And what that kind of boils down to is, they're a part of something, right? They are a part of something. They need to feel like they're a part of something. So I'm reading a lot about negotiation skills right now because I'm planning my new advocacy training. If you want to be a special education advocate, if you are a special education advocate and are looking for more training, I am um, soon going to announce my advocacy training. I think it's going to be called, um, it's ABC, so follow along here, Advocacy, Business, and Special Education Concepts, the C, by Ashley Barlow Company. And, you know, as I'm reading about negotiation, 
I've, I've learned, I've kind of seen this pattern of so many books talking about the psychology of belonging. It's important feeling a part of a group, feeling like you're making a meaningful contribution, feeling like people want you to be there, feeling a part of a community. And so one way to accomplish this is by creating a community where everybody feels like their input matters, right? And so from an advocacy standpoint, you know, on the IEP team, it's important that parents feel like their voice matters. It's important that the OT feels like his or her voice matters. You know, that's kind of the, the negotiation skill. But as we apply that to inclusion, it really, the same thing holds true, it's human nature. We want to feel included. And so if we want to create a more inclusive environment, we need to make sure that those whole community things are more inclusive. And so we need to make sure that those events are equitable and that they serve each child's unique profile. And so we might have to provide accommodations at things like that, right? We're talking about assemblies, fairs like the math fair, the science fair, the book fair, those kinds of things, the talent show, plays, performances, other things that happen on the stage, social things like the senior prank. Oh my gosh, funniest senior prank that my school did a few years ago. Um, the kids went, we have very limited parking in my little town, and the kids got to school, the seniors got to school ahead of most of the teachers, and I guess they parked like all cattywankas. Um, in the in the parking lot so that the teachers, A, couldn't park and the parking lot was like mass chaos. And I do think that that is really, really funny. And so, you know, we're kind of looking at um, the, the, the social aspect when we think about social things like senior pranks, that school festival. These are the things that we are talking about. And so maybe we offer accommodations to the children with more significant needs, like Maybe we offer the child some kind of peer helper or adult helper, you know? I mean, if it's the senior prank, then we've got a, a, a peer tutor or some person that is assigned to making sure that the child feels included in the senior year festivities. Um, maybe the person needs breaks, you know? Maybe they could access the science fair, but they need a place where they can go take a break. Um, I'll never forget when my principal herself went and took Jack to the sensory room in our school at a whole school festival because he was having a hard time. I was trying to, maybe I was working. I don't remember where I was in this scenario, but she was like, here, let's go down and we'll go do the sensory room for a little bit. And then he came back and he was able to re-engage. Um, maybe a child needs a shorter time or a longer time at a particular station or at the event itself, and that's okay. Maybe we need devices like headphones or adaptive seating or something like that at those things. Maybe we need, um, you know, the availability to bring extra support, to bring something from home that isn't accessible to children that don't need it. Um, we look at those big community events and we say, what does each particular child need in order to access this in a meaningful way? And that's really where the advocacy comes from, right? So those are three things that schools can do to make their whole school environments more inclusive.
And therefore, they are three things for which you can advocate if you are advocating for your child's school to be more inclusive. So number one, we can utilize the child's interest for motivation. Number two, we can promote communication for more participation. And number three, we can focus on those whole school community events. I hope you'll join me next week, same time, same place. Have a great week.